Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, what can be learned from the Spanish flu pandemic, which killed over 50 million people 100 years ago? In some ways, you could argue that we were the architects of our own misery. And I speak to Carl Malamud, an internet activist from public.resource.org, about access to government information and data. The principle that edicts of government must be available to read and speak is, is a core principle we're going after. And 4,000 meters under the sea, how do creatures get their food? The amount of food that was dropping to the bottom of the ocean was not sufficient to explain the amount of life that they could see. But first, the Spanish flu of 1918 was probably the worst catastrophe of the 20th century. It is thought to have killed more people than both world wars put together. 100 years on, what lessons can be learned and how can we avoid a similar pandemic today? I'm joined on the line by Laura Spinney, a science journalist and the author of Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. Hello, Laura. Hi. Laura, first, how is it that we know how many people died of Spanish flu in 1918? Well, it's not an easy question, actually. In the 1920s, the first estimates were that about 20 million people died. And then at the end of the 20th century, that was revised upwards to close to 30 million. And then at the beginning of this century to 50 million, with this caveat that that it might have been um, twice as bad. And why was it so lethal? The virus itself seems to have been particularly virulent, inherently virulent. Flu is a is a virus that changes all the time, it mutates all the time, that's why we have to update our annual vaccine. But there's also a school of thought that the Spanish flu was so bad compared to other flu pandemics that humanity has suffered because it emerged into a world at war. Lots of people were on the move in 1918, not just troops, but also civilians, refugees, lots of people were hungry, lots of people's uh, public health infrastructure had been suspended or broken down because of the war. So in some ways, you could argue that we were the architects of our own misery. And so how did the flu end? So when you get a new strain of flu emerging, it very often causes a pandemic because basically the human immune system is not in any way adapted to it. So it's very dangerous at first. Then that flu strain moderates its virulence because it's not in its interest to kill its host. It wants its host to stay alive for a long time so it can move around and infect other hosts. And so every pandemic will vanish on its own after a while. And so what you see is this pandemic running its course. So what is it that we can learn by studying the Spanish flu of 1918 that we can put into place today? 
But we're still learning. I mean, one of the things we know now is that flu pandemics are fairly inevitable. We've had 15 of them in the last 500 years. Um, uh, that gives you, if you work it out, a, an average uh, inter-flu pandemic interval of about 33 years. The last one was in 2009, so it's fairly likely we'll have at least one more this century. In 2018, we're not able to predict the when and the where of the next pandemic or how severe it will be. So we're in this kind of difficult middle place where we know it'll happen. We can't really say much about how. We do have much better surveillance than 100 years ago. So we can see which flu vaccines are getting close to pandemic capacity. That is new strains that have emerged and that are becoming good at transmitting easily between humans, which is kind of the dangerous step so they can race around the world very fast. And, and so we can build that into our vaccine strategies, try to put components of those viruses into uh, the vaccines that we manufacture. But we need, you know, this huge kind of infrastructure that makes the vaccine fast enough, that gets it everywhere uh, in time. We need better antiviral drugs. And for all of this, we need better research and better infrastructure. And that means funding and investment. And that's not really happening to the extent it should be at the moment to make our health systems resilient. Laura, my final question to you is, why is it called the Spanish flu? We have a tendency, human beings, I mean, to blame the other for um, a catastrophe that emerges amongst us. And that was as obvious in 1918 as it is today. But there was an extra factor playing in 1918, which was the war. Everybody was pointing fingers at everyone else. And in the belligerent countries, they were censoring their press because they didn't want news to get into the newspapers that would potentially damage the morale of their reputations. So you see, for example, France, Britain and America, all of which had the flu earlier than Spain, keeping it out of their newspapers, whereas Spain, which was crucially neutral in the war, did not censor its press. And so when the first cases broke out there in May um, 1918, they were reported and it seemed to the whole world that it was coming out from Madrid. Amongst those early cases in Madrid were also the King of Spain, Alfonso Thirteenth. So it was incredibly visible. Laura Spinney, thank you very much. Thank you. Next up, if the founding fathers of the Internet are engineers who built it, then Carl Malamud deserves a place in the Pantheon as well as a person who made it useful. For a quarter of a century, he has been the quote-unquote Robin Hood of data, making the case that official information should be made available to the public. In the 1990s, that's meant that he put the Securities and Exchange Commission's public company filings online for free. Today, he does something similar with his nonprofit, public.resource.org. And he has also created critics. One has called him an information terrorist. He joins me in the studio now. Hello, Carl. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. So, Carl, you have had a storied and legendary career by putting public information online. That's not always been beloved. <laughs> no, it hasn't. Um, uh, it's often been government information because that, that is the best example of public information. And governments have not always liked it when I put their information online, even when everybody agrees that the information ought to be public. OK, so give me some examples. Uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. When I first started looking at the Edgar database, which is the filings of all public corporations, it cost 20 or $30 to get the annual report of a company or the IPO filing or something of that sort. And the SEC had a... Um, a system of wholesaling the data to a corporation, which in turn added value and then retailed it to companies like Dow Jones and Disclosure. And they were selling these things because they thought that they ought to cost money. The purpose of these annual reports 
is not to be a revenue source for the SEC or private industry. It's to make our markets more transparent and more efficient. Um, so maybe you can sell an annual report for $20, but the outsize effects of limiting that information are dramatic on the economy. It's a, it's a pound foolish, penny wise kind of thing. Now, legal records, uh, court filings in the U.S. should be free, but they're encumbered. Explain. Well, the uh, rule of law, of course, says that our courts shall function in daylight. But what we have for our United States district courts is a system called PACER, public access to uh, court electronic records. And they charge money. They charge 10 cents a page. Uh, many state governments also sell access to data either directly or by outsourcing the court reporter function to companies like West and Lexis. What's the obstacle? Money. What do you mean, money? The courts get $150 million a year out of the PACER system, and they use it to buy widescreen TVs and modernize their technology, and they don't want to give up the money. Now, you're in Europe this week, uh, and you have to be a little bit wary and gingerly on where you step because you have a, a lawsuit against you. A German court has... Oh, it's not a lawsuit. It's a decision against me. Uh, Sorry, the, the, indeed. The, it's race judicato, which means that it's, it's been decided and decided put to bed. Law. And so uh, how much? Well, uh, let me tell you the crime first. The Quite. crime was I took the EU-mandated legal safety standard for baby soothers, for baby pacifiers, and I put it on the internet. And after going through several courts of law, uh, I was found guilty of copyright infringement, uh, uh, infringing the German standards body's rights to sell the standard in Germany. Okay, so how is it that the public safety standard for baby pacifiers should be encumbered with a intellectual property claim by the German standards body? The standards are funded by the EU. They are they go through a draft period. There's public comment. They are then noticed in the official journal, and then every country in Europe has six months to transpose them into national law. Despite that, there is a fiction that somehow these standards are not the law, even though you have to follow them. If you want to sell a baby pacifier, uh, it must meet these, these safety requirements. Despite that, uh, the presumption is that somehow these are private voluntary standards and therefore are not the law and therefore can be sold. I, I think this is a fiction, but it, it is a well-developed fiction. Carl, you straddled two worlds. What you're describing sounds really technical and in the weeds, but you have always seen something else. The other world you're straddling is you see this as really the bedrock of democracy and governance of the people, by the people, for the people. So the rule of law um, has a, a couple principles, but the most important principle is that the law shall be promulgated, right? That the law shall be available. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Um, and when you think about our laws that are on the books, I think our most important laws in our modern technical world are these technical public safety standards, building codes that say, if you build a school or a healthcare facility, here are the requirements for egress in case of fire. If you are in a factory, here are the requirements for personal protective equipment. If you are transporting gasoline, here are the hazardous material transport requirements on public roadways. These are our most important laws in, in today's world. Most people don't have to worry about, about you know, income tax fraud or, or about criminal penalties for, you know, for crime. I, I mean, those are important issues. But every homeowner has to worry about the electrical safety code in their house. Yet those laws have not been available, and I've spent 10 years trying to make them available. Okay, so what's next for you? Where do you see the final frontier of your battle? 
Well, for this question of edicts of government, uh, the law being available for people to read and speak, right? It's it's not just being able to go to some official website and getting a read-only version that you can't download unless you pay extra money. It's being able to take the law, make it available for big data purposes, making it available for any citizen to be able to access easily. Um, so in Europe, we are taking another try at it. We were convicted in a German court, um, but we're going to take another crack at convincing the European Union that that perhaps mandatory safety standards should be available. And is there a holy grail here? Is there is there something that really seems to be the chalice on the hill that if only you could attain and make public that you would feel that you're, it would be the capstone of your career and your life would be a unbridled success? Well, I don't know about unbridled success, but but the principle that edicts of government must be available to read and speak is, is a core principle we're going after. And I'll give you another example of something totally egregious, though. In today's world of big data, machine learning, and artificial intelligence, um, the idea that you can't do research on the entire corpus of scientific journal articles is absolutely nuts. Yeah. Um, it is life-saving research that can be done by mining this database, looking for emerging areas, looking for biodiversity information, looking for for meta-research over genomic data. You can't do that today. And copyright never presumed that that would even be possible, so there was no right enshrined at the original time of publication. Oh, it's even worse than that. So copyright is one issue, but you know, a lot of the journal articles are not under copyright. Um, I did a study of works of the U.S. government. So if, if a federal employee in the United States in the course of their official duty authors something not eligible for copyright... Um, despite that, I found 1.2 million journal articles by federal employees, maybe in the course of their official duties, maybe not, but many of them clearly are, like a doctor at the National Institutes of Health writing up their research results. Many of them are locked away behind paywalls. There's a lot of open access research that is not available, but it should be available. There are old journal articles in which the copyright did not get renewed, but despite that, you can only get it if you agree to the terms of use of a particular vendor. That's so fascinating. Carl, thank you for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And now we go to the bottom of the ocean. Why is there so much life on the floor of the deep ocean where food was thought to be scarce? Katrine Breik is our science correspondent. and She has the answer. So, Katrine, why don't I start there? Why is there so much life on the floor of the ocean? So there's actually several answers to that. One, the primary source of food um, to the deep sea is actually what's known as marine snow. Uh, And this is bits of organic matter, dead plankton, for instance, that drops through the water in column and slowly, slowly glides down to the bottom of the ocean. But... An interesting point is that in Monterey, for decades, they've been doing these experiments, looking at the amount of life that there is in the deep sea trench, so going all the way down to 4,000 meters beneath the waves, and then comparing that to how much food actually reaches the deep sea. And what they found was that there was this gap. So the amount of food that was dropping to the bottom of the ocean was not sufficient to explain the amount of life that they could see. So this is a nice little mystery in marine biology. Where does the food come from? Possibly these insane animals called giant larvations, sort of tadpole-like animals, translucent with a little blue edge, 
Uh, they've got a head and a wide, flat tail, and they're only about 10 centimeters long. So they're not that giant. But the thing that is enormous that they create are these huge mucus houses that they sort of excrete from the top of their heads, and they form in two layers. The internal house looks like uh, it's got two lobes. It looks a little bit like a floating brain. And then around that is the external house that can reach a meter across. And so that's the giant part. It's actually these houses that they, that they build around themselves. And so how does this become a food source for other animals? What the biologists studying these animals have realized is that these mucus houses are in fact filters. And then when the mucus gets clogged, the filter gets clogged, the, the animal sort of flips its tail and, and abandons the house and goes off to build another one. And the house itself, as soon as the water isn't being pumped through it, the house collapses on itself and starts to sink to the bottom of the ocean. And of course, what it's doing is dragging all of that particulate matter, all of that organic matter that's trapped in the mucus, down to the bottom of the sea with it. Um, and what's really cool is that um, they, they measured how fast these mucus houses, these abandoned houses, were dropping to the sea floor. And they found that it's probably one of the fastest sinking things out there. So it, the, an abandoned house sinks to the bottom of the sea at a rate of 800 meters per day. And by comparison, most marine snow sinks only a few centimeters a day. And what that means is that the organic matter, the food, is, doesn't have enough time to be digested, to degrade, before sinking to the seafloor, and so more of it gets down to the bottom. And in fact, the latest measurements suggest that it's up to a third of the food that reaches the deep sea, in Monterey Bay at least. But they have reasons for believing that that's true elsewhere as well. So as these houses start to sink, other animals eat it, and therefore we answer the mystery how food exists on the deep ocean floor. Katrine, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. If you enjoy our journalism, consider taking out a subscription to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for £12 or $12. I'm Kenneth Kukier in London. This is The Econ-No-Mist. 